Hey there, friends. I'm your host, Lindsay Navama, and we're diving into episode two of the Earth Food First podcast, where every week we inspire families to learn to use food as a tool to protect your children's long-term health. So to launch the podcast, we did a three-part series in episodes one through three to sort of set the table and um, ensure that we're all kind of gathered at the same restaurant. In episode one, I shared the personal story that led me to embark on the mission of reimagining America's kid food culture through Earth Food First and discussed why this mission is so critical right now and how families can begin to create their very own family food culture focused on whole child health. Today, we're going to be unwrapping the story of how we got to this concerning crossroads, where an unintentional overconsumption of what's been normalized as kid food is actually quietly robbing so many children of their right to lifelong mental and physical health. And for me, one of the most unsettling parts of all of this is that many parents have absolutely no idea about the true quantity of sugar and processed ingredients that their children are consuming on a daily and weekly basis and the actual toll that that has on the child's health. So this is heavy, right? And if you're thinking, ugh, like I cannot handle this right now, I get it. I definitely get it. I'm halfway through this incredible book called um, Sugar Proof Your Kids, and it's hard to listen to. And I promise you, this podcast is not about inciting fear. We are absolutely here to empower parents with knowledge, actionable strategies, and effective methods to prevent your children from becoming victims of America's processed food epidemic. So let's go ahead and just explore how kid food even became a thing with a little journey back in time to understand two things, how America's kid food culture was born and why in the world does kid food contain so much sugar, salt, and unhealthy fats? Did you know that many countries don't even have kid food? So what? do those kids do? In many cultures around the globe, kids just eat smaller portions of the foods that are traditionally eaten by their families. So when exactly did America decide that kids needed different food? This idea of kid food has absolutely not always existed. It emerged as a byproduct of societal changes, advances in technology, and marketing tactics. In the early 20th century, children typically just ate a smaller, maybe more mild version of what their parents were eating, and that was usually cooked whole foods at home. Then when prohibition came around, and this is really interesting, all of those restaurants lost revenue from alcohol sales, and so they were like, hmm, how can we make that up, right? They had to recoup some of that money. And they decided that they would introduce kid food menus. And in 1921, the Waldorf Astoria in New York actually became one of the first hotels to offer a menu just for kids. But these menus looked nothing. When I say nothing, I mean nothing like the kids' menus of today. They were filled with incredibly bland, whole, 
foods. So they were more nutritionally dense. Um, think like boiled chicken with boiled rice with no salt and the uh, plain broiled lamb chop was like on every menu. Um, and that was because there was a book called The Care and Feeding of Children by the pediatrician Emmett Emmett Holt. And it was actually published in 1894. And it stayed in print for nearly half a century. So we, we have this history of like not remodeling kid food culture very often. Um, but what this doctor did was basically forbid parents and caretakers from feeding their children anything with flavor. And so while it did promote better nutrition for the kids than we have today, it was super, super rigid and definitely not something that I'm sure most kids were excited to eat. So by World War II, there was a new book that took over called Baby and Child Care, and it was by Benjamin Spock. And this definitely allowed sort of for more flavorful foods to start appearing on kids' menus, and for a while they were still more whole foods. And restaurants had grown really reliant on its marketing benefits. It was bringing in revenue. Families were bringing their kids to restaurants. And so the kid menu stuck. Meanwhile, a growing processed food industry made it irresistibly cost-effective to rewrite children's menus. And they added these really junky foods that were really cheap to make. And so by the 1970s, the kind of fried, very basic, like nuggets, burgers, pizza, children menu that we all know today was in place. That means that this menu hasn't really been reimagined or remodeled in nearly five decades. Let's now go to the post-World War II era to understand what created this massive boom of processed, what they call convenience food. So there were a couple things at play. After the war, there was a huge surplus in things like corn, soy, and beet sugar. And the government realized we need a way to get Americans to eat more food. They need to eat this surplus. And so they literally started shoving these ingredients into our processed foods. Um, and many uh, of these ingredients were created in the form of sugar. So the canned foods, TV dinners, and processed snacks that emerged were brimming with sugar from some of these surplus ingredients. And when exactly did they start marketing all this food to our children? That has to do with the rise of television. So when more and more families started to get TV, companies started advertising to kids and they would create cereals um, with kind of fun animal mascots or toy tie-ins, and they began to market aggressively to kids um, so their families would buy these kid-food-friendly foods. Okay, so stay with me here. I know this is a long timeline. Now we're in 1960 and 1980. This is the period when the fast food boom happened. And with the rise of fast food chains like McDonald's, kid marketing reached a new all-time high. They were introducing the Happy Meals. And so there was toys and um, the different play areas that were for the families, which all seemed great at the time, right? None of us knew what was about to happen. 
breakfast cereals started becoming sweeter and more colorful, and they started being a lot less about nutrition and far more just about fun and kind of like appealing to children. Now we're in the 1990s to the 2000s, and this is the birth of kid cuisine. So if you remember like the frozen meals that kind of were specifically made for kids and they had like fun shapes and characters and little dessert compartments. And so this was the first time also that there started to be a sort of rumbling that maybe this type of food is not great for kids because this is when we start to kind of see the uptick in childhood obesity. And so sadly, those very quiet complaints over two decades later have not gotten us very far. Now let's look at the kid food culture today, which has become increasingly polarized. So now we have the natural and organic movement, right? And this has helped to some extent and in certain factions of society, right? So some of these processed foods, they're making them organic, they're putting less fillers in them. The companies behind these really do want to do better by our children. However, they still need to turn a profit. And so even a lot of the healthy or organic foods that you see when they're processed still contain a lot of sugar um, in comparison to what our children should really be consuming. Very little, however, on the other end of the spectrum has been done with kind of mass uh, marketed um, kid food and school lunches. So those are still being created in a way that's very addicting in nature and lacking nutritionally. We also now have apps and online games and social media, which are all different channels where companies can market kid food to kids. The last thing is cooking is still very uh, much an optional thing that families look at. They don't look at it as a critical life skill and something that is important to do at home in order to protect our children's health and important to teach our children how to do themselves so they can get out into the world and they know how to cook whole foods to support their own health moving forward. So that's kind of the lay of the land. That's how we got to where we are today. Now, you might think a country that went so far as to create a specific food for kids would have made that food absolutely exceptional, specifically to support optimal health, right? Because isn't a nation only as strong as its next generation? Then why? Why in the world would we have created processed kid food to be just brimming with salt, sugar, and unhealthy fats? all ingredients proven to actually undermine our children's health. So let me tell you why. Kids are born, it's innate, preferring sweet flavors, and this ensures that they will like breast milk, which happens to be naturally sweet. So kid food companies are aware of this, and they exploit the natural tendency of kids to want sugar and like sugar by adding sugar to nearly everything they want children to immediately like and thus inspire their parents to continually buy. And this is understandable. Many parents naturally would gravitate towards purchasing foods that they know their kids will eat without a battle, right? Sounds logical. The problem is that many of these foods are actually engineered with a bliss point. And I love this term. 
Um, it is a term that could have its own episode, but today I'm just going to give you the cliff notes. So the bliss point refers to the optimal amount of salt, sugar, or fat in a processed food that maximizes a person's pleasure and keeps them coming back for more. Since the feel-good chemical dopamine gets a boost with every bite. So when we hear people talking about a processed food that is just, oh, this is so good. It's like addicting. Many of them are literally designed to be that way. So food scientists working for the processed food industry often formulate products to hit this bliss point to increase consumption and therefore increase sales. The concept of a bliss point was popularized by food scientist Howard Muskowitz in the 1970s and 1980s, and food companies would hire him to determine the exact combination of sweetness, fat, salt, crunch, aroma, and texture that would just make consumers fall in love with their products. And so because the bliss point involves heightened levels of sugar, salt, and or fat, these foods are often nutritionally unbalanced and void of the nutrients that our kids actually need for their growing bodies. In fact, they're engineered to taste so good that they can actually bypass the usual mechanisms that our bodies have in place for signaling when we've had enough. And this leads to the overconsumption. So think about it. Have you ever been just like, eating a bowl of broccoli and thought, wow, I just can't stop. I just need like a couple more florets. I promise that has never, <laughs> it's never happened to me. And I want to hear from you if it's happened to you. And that's on purpose, right? Nature created the food that we're supposed to eat um, because it wants our body to signal when we're full naturally. Whereas these processed foods can easily override our our built-in I'm full operating system. So while many families might assume that food companies naturally put the best interest of our children at heart, the truth is that most of the large CPG companies out there, that's consumer packaged good companies, have profits at heart. They're not out to get our kids. They're just out to make their profits. And that's why so much of the kid food today is filled with the ingredients that creates a bliss point, which creates an unnatural desire and preference for these highly, highly processed foods. The sooner in life that kids get hooked on these dopamine boosts from eating engineered bliss point food, the harder it can become to teach them the life skill of eating in a way that actually protects their whole health with whole foods. So this is interesting. Studies have actually shown that babies fed a more varied flavor profile early in life are more likely to try and accept a wider variety of foods as they continue to grow. In a research paper titled Learning to Eat Birth to Age 2 by Birch and Daub published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition in 2014, discussed how the first 24 months of life can be crucial for the development of dietary patterns. So I don't want you to worry here if your child is over two years old. After this window of time, it is still totally possible to teach your child to enjoy a variety of earth foods 
But I'll be honest, it can take more work from the parents um, and just sort of committing to repeating exposures for longer durations of time. So the sweet spot, if you happen to be um, a mama that's listening to this with a bun in the oven or someone that does have a toddler or a baby, um, that window when they're young might make your life a little bit easier um, in the future. But for all parents, um, it's just about repeat exposure. Um, it can take anywhere from 20 to 40 exposures for a child to go from rejecting a food to accepting a food. And sometimes even longer. It just depends on the kid. So in other cultures such as India and many parts of Asia, where sour, bitter, and even spicy flavors are more prevalent, Babies are just naturally exposed to more of these flavors through breast milk and once they begin solid foods. But in America's current kid food culture, most babies don't even have the chance to actually develop a palate for sour, bitter, salty, and even spicy flavors because more often than not, they're moved from sweet breast milk to kind of kid-friendly food, which typically prioritizes sweet as the dominant flavor. Whew, that was a lot, right? So now I'm going to share with you what exactly I did differently when it came to feeding Stella. So armed with some of the knowledge that I've shared with you here today, I decided to make sweet the last flavor that we prioritized with Stella. It wasn't a flavor that I had to teach her to like, right? Because Again, they're innately born with a preference for sweet foods. So I made a really big effort, especially from ages six months to about two and a half years, to expose her to a wide variety of vegetables, herbs, spices, sauces, and seasonings like vinegar. And we had fun with it. When she eats something sour, I'd always told her it was a party in her mouth. And now it's like anything she has sour, she's like, mama, party in my mouth. And um, it was just something that I exposed her to from a very young age, even though pretty much no other moms I knew were doing this. And it's helped her become comfortable with these flavors, bitter, sour, salty, and even somewhat spicy um, while she was young. And it seems to have made introducing her to new foods as a toddler far easier. So again, if you're well beyond the toddler phase, it is absolutely not too late. Children are super agile and humans can learn new habits when they are given the time to do so. So just remember what we normalize does become normal. And this is true in life as well as in the kitchen. I don't know about you, but I am ready to wrap up this little history lesson. I actually never liked history in school, but I can definitely see the value of understanding the path that led us to where we stand now. So if you only take one thing away from today's episode, let it be this. The knowledge that eating earth foods is a teachable life skill and that most processed kid food isn't created with our kids' well-being in mind. We can use our dollars to support our children's health or food corporations' wealth. Now it's time for the fun part. We are going to pack one Earth Food First lunch, and I'm going to share one healthy swap. 
So an earth food first lunch is a lunch that has no processed products in it. These are easier to make than you'd think. They can be very um, cost effective. They can even be time efficient. And um, it's something that can greatly reduce the amount of sugar that your child's consuming. All right, earth food first lunch number one. This is a lunch that you can put together in just five minutes if you made the rice and cut up the veggies the day before. It would take about 20 minutes start to finish um, if you have to do the prep. So we have our protein-rich sesame rice with peas and or shelled edamame, and you can also add tofu, chopped chicken, or any other protein you'd like. You simply um, add a little bit of sesame oil and sesame seeds, and you'll have the recipe for this in our show notes. Then we have pitted olives and dill pickles. These are a great way to expose your child to sour, kind of salty, and bitter flavors. And then we have our cut up cucumbers with coconut aminos or tahini or just some olive oil and salt and then sliced red, yellow or orange bell pepper. So it's really colorful. Um, The lunch has protein, fat, fiber and greens and it kind of exposes your kid to many different flavor profiles um, without any added sugar. All right, time for the healthy swap. Today's healthy swap gummy bears, that sweet little treat that children just love. So here's what we tend to do instead. We buy dried mulberries and you can buy these on Amazon. If you don't have them in your local store, there's white and black and they're just these little chewy berries that are a great swap for the gummy bear. As I was writing this episode, it just kind of helped me pause and really take in where we are today. And I know that so many families kind of feel like they're stuck in bumper to bumper traffic on this processed food highway. And the goal of our podcast and the goal of the Earth Food First community is to help you find an exit and take that exit and start traveling a new country road where farm food rides shotgun and processed food takes a seat in the way, way back. But I want you to know that change doesn't happen all at once. I am still working on healing my gut, and it has been six years since I was first diagnosed with any type of a gut health issue. But in each episode, we are sharing one thing that you can do this week to better protect your children's mental and physical health. So this week, you can aim to pack one or more lunches using only earth food or choose to pack a lunch that contains zero added sugars. So how do you know if there's added sugar in a product? If you look at the nutritional label, they are required to list under sugars if there's any added sugar. And next week, we're going to be adding up the sugars of some typical kid lunches. And I think you will be absolutely shocked to see how much is in there and where the sugar hides. So all of this can feel overwhelming. I promise you, I understand that. And transparently, I had a mini meltdown this morning, um, partially due to lack of sleep because my toddler Stella woke me up many a time last night. Um, And I was also just kind of getting ready for today, this podcast, wondering how I can teach other families to um, protect their kids through food when 
my gut health is far from picture perfect right now. But I took a couple deep breaths. Transparently, I was sitting on my bathroom floor with the door locked, which I know many mamas can relate to. And I will be honest, I reminded myself that I never want Stella or any child to suffer unnecessarily with gut health issues that can ultimately lead to more serious and preventable disease states. At the end of the day, the more we know, the easier it becomes to rewire our own brains to create new norms around food in our home and help educate our children so they can not only be the generation that better understands their big feelings, thanks to Dr. Becky, and big shout out to the Good Inside community, but also a generation who from a young age is aware of how to use food as a tool to protect themselves from becoming victims of America's processed food epidemic. In the next episode, I share the exact blueprint for how I've fed my family since Stella was born with the goal of using food to protect my daughter's whole health and teaching her to do the same. In many ways, I did the exact opposite of what the kid food culture prescribes today. And I'll show you how you can do the very same at your own pace, adopting a new family food culture that prioritizes whole child health, body, mood, and mind. Thank you so much for spending your super precious time with me today, for listening, for caring, and for being bold in the face of change. If you appreciated this episode, it would be the absolute world if you would follow, rate, and review our podcast. Also, feel free to share this with any humans you love who are raising little people that we need to protect so they can live out their long, healthy lives that they so deserve. Find more Earth Food First goodness on Instagram. We're at Earth Food First. And don't forget to grab your free Veggies First guide. The link is in the show notes. I'll see you next week.